to the 2018 6th Annual Kessler Neurotrauma Conference, sponsored by Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation and Kessler Foundation. This conference presents an in-depth look at the art of delivering individualized rehabilitation services to this diverse patient population. Physicians, clinicians, and research scientists will provide insight into a range of topics, from mobility and fatigue to intimacy and sexuality to employment and empowerment, and will offer innovative evidence-based strategies to effectively support both the patient and the caregiver. This podcast was recorded and produced by Joan Banks-Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation, on Friday, December 7, 2018, at the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation Conference Center, West Orange, New Jersey. In this lecture podcast, Ms. Patricia Walling presents Survival After Severe Trauma, Meeting Patient and Family Needs. Ms. Walling is a Trauma Program Manager, Advanced Practice Nurse at University Hospital, Newark, New Jersey. To listen to more conference podcasts, information about Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, or Kessler Foundation, check out the links within the description of this podcast. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter. Let's listen in. So Patricia Walling is a trauma program manager and advanced practice nurse with the New Jersey Trauma Center at University Hospital. She's going to be talking to us today about survival after severe trauma, meeting patient and family needs. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, everyone, and thank you all for being here, and thank you, Lou and Pam, for inviting me to speak about something that's really become uh, very dear to my heart. I've been working as a trauma program manager and a nurse practitioner for about 22 years down the road from you guys at University Hospital, and one of the things that we didn't sort of think about for a while was what happens to our patients after they have a really bad trauma. We took care of them, we saw them in follow-up, and then they sort of went on their merry way. If we were lucky, we may have found out what they were doing years down the road, but, but not often. Um, so lately, we've been thinking a lot about that. Greetings from everybody at Newark. We love Kessler. They're sort of our partner for a lot of things. So objectives. What I'm going to do first is talk about post-intensive care syndrome, which is where most of our severely injured patients wind up in our surgical trauma intensive care unit. And that's just a broad overview of post-intensive care syndrome to sort of lay the groundwork. Then I'm going to talk about why trauma is special. Trauma is special. Trauma patients are special. And then I'm going to talk about our trauma recovery project. Some statistics. Somewhere around 6 million patients a year are admitted to an intensive care unit. When I first started as a graduate nurse, and that was a long time ago because it took a while for us to get our board results back. They let us work as graduate nurses. I worked in an intensive care unit that was 15 beds in an open ward. If you were really sick, you died because we just didn't have the resources. Our ventilators were very basic. Meds were pretty basic. A lot of things were non-existent. Now we have amazing ventilators that do all kinds of super things. We have ECMO. We have left ventricular uh, and devices that are about the size of a quarter, the impellas. Uh, all kinds of medications. We know so much more than we did then. So that 
somewhere around 30% of these people survive. So we've got around four to five million people a year who are being added as severe illness survivors, sepsis, stroke, heart attacks, a lot of things besides trauma. So we need to start thinking about them. Our patients have now survived. What happens to them now? What are their problems? What are their issues? What's their life like? Post-intensive care syndrome. We started thinking about this maybe about 18, 20 years ago. And we were first thinking about it as delirium. And we sort of knew that as ICU psychosis. Has anybody been an ICU patient? Had a family member in the ICU? Did you notice that they were having things like delirium? They were hallucinating about things, thinking about things that weren't going on. Maybe they had a lot of problems when they came out. This is what we started looking at. But it's more than just delirium. It is a whole host of problems and issues. So back in 2010, the Society of Critical Care Medicine came up with a definition that they thought kind of covered the waterfront here. And it talked about impairments, not just delirium, but physical impairments, cognitive impairments, and psychological impairments that were either new or worse, and that they persisted after the hospitalization. So that's the definition. They also extended that to the family as well, that the family also develops some uh, cognitive issues, physical issues, and psychological issues caring for a patient who's been in the ICU, family member. So to talk about it a little bit more, <clears throat> let me see if I can do my, my laser. Oh, well. The survivor, we have the three categories. They're going to have changes in their physical health. Some of this is due to being in the ICU. They're going to have overwhelming fatigue. They're going to have a loss of muscle mass. They're very catabolic from the illness. They'll also lose muscle mass from being in bed for so long. They'll have the remnants of whatever illness or injury that they had. And they may also have exacerbations of the previous illnesses. If they had a kidney problem prior to this, their kidney problem may now be worse, and they'll need to go on dialysis. Their psychological health. They're going to have anxiety, complicated grief, depression, acute stress disorder. While they're in the hospital, they may develop post-traumatic stress disorder. There may also be previous psychological issues that are going to be made worse by this. If you were an anxious or depressed person before, an ICU stay is not going to make you better. Cognitive health. Your processing is going to be delayed. You're going to have impairments in your judgment. You're going to have short-term memory problems. The stress is going to exacerbate all of these issues. So you have stress overlying all of these things and making it worse. And we know that families are going to have a lot of the same issues. They're there visiting, hanging out in the waiting room, then taking these people home and taking care of them or if they're lucky, they're going to be going to rehab, but then they're still running back and forth to visit them in rehab. 
Families are going to have issues with their own health. They may have health conditions that they're not taking care of because they're so worried about their family member. That's going to get worse. They're not sleeping well. They're not eating well. They're stressed. Their psychological health is impaired. They also have complicated grief, anxiety, depression. They can also have PTSD. So this is what they're going to see when they come in to visit their loved one. And it's a frightening thing. And it's not something that any of them will get used to. They don't know what to do with that person. They don't know how to talk to them, how to reach them, how to touch them. They don't know if they're going to live or die. More statistics. What's really kind of, um, I think, earth-shaking for me on these statistics is not that people have these issues once they get out of the ICU, which is bad in itself, but the amount of people who continue to have these issues a year or more after they're discharged from the ICU. They're still having cognitive difficulties. They're still having psychological difficulties. They're still having physical difficulties. And we just have not been aware enough of what's going on to figure out how to help. So patients and families don't expect a slow recovery. They expect, when they're coming out of the ICU, that everything is going to get better, like it does on Gray's Anatomy or Chicago Med. And that doesn't happen. Their expectations of life going back to normal are not going to be met. There's a new normal now. Healthcare providers, as well as the public, don't understand the aftermath of the ICU and what happens and what patients and caregivers go through. They wind up going back to the emergency department more often. Their pain may not be controlled. They don't know what to do. Their wound doesn't look right. They're just not feeling right. So they go to the emergency department. The emergency department doesn't know what to do with them, especially if they wind up at a different hospital. They've been in the ICU at Hospital X, but they live closer to Hospital Y, so that's the ED that they go to. They don't know what happened to them because our systems don't communicate. They get readmitted because the ED doesn't know what to do with them. They go see their primary care provider much more often. If their intensivist has not been communicating with their primary care provider, that primary care provider doesn't know what's gone on with that patient. There are enormous financial difficulties that these people face, which adds more stress to what's going on. A lot of them are unable to return to work after a year, maybe two years. The longer they're out of work, the less chance that they may be able to ever go back to work. Their insurance is going to have issues. They may only pay for a certain amount of things. They only may pay for one drug, but not for another drug. They'll pay for someone in one network, but if they have to change their insurance because they've lost their job now, then their doctor's no longer in their network. 
So this also, the post-intensive care syndrome also extends to the family. They will also have anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, stress, um, complicated grief, sleep issues. They're catching cat naps in the waiting room of the ICU. Maybe they're going home and having some interrupted sleep for an hour here and there. They're also neglecting their own physical issues. They come to the hospital. They're called to the hospital emergently sometimes. They come in. It's like coming into a foreign country. They don't speak the language. They don't know the customs. They're very frustrated. They're sitting in the waiting room, and there are a lot of other people who are going through similar things. There's a lot of bonding going on, but they're also picking up everybody else's stress, everybody else's grief and anger and issues. So it kind of complicates and makes everything worse. They get very difficult to understand information and to remember the information. They will remember possibly a third of what they're told at this point in time. It makes it really difficult for them. They're exhausted. Plus, they're struggling with their other responsibilities. There may be children they have to take care of, elderly parents, work, community responsibilities, pets, who's going to walk the dog. All kinds of things are going through their minds. So what can we do about this? The first thing we have to do is understand that there is a problem, which we're now beginning to understand, and that it is multifactorial. There are lots of things that play into this problem. There's no easy fix for it. And it lasts for a long time. It can be months. It can be years. We don't really know. In the acute phase, and this is like a day-long conference to talk about this stuff, but a lot of what you saw in the video, the prevention. The American Association of Critical Care Nurses has a bundle. It's ABCDE, awake, breathe, get them out of bed, being mobile, walking, decreasing sedation, breathing trials, having lights on, fixing sleep, making sure their sleep is uninterrupted at night as much as possible preventing delirium, educating the patient and the family, and remembering that this is something that has to be done over and over again because they're not going to remember what you told them, making sure services are coordinated, and managing those transition points because they are really anxiety-producing for the patients and the families. They're going from the ICU to either a step-down unit or the floor. They are very anxious about that. One of our patients told us that going from the ICU to the floor was like going from a first-class cabin to steerage. They don't understand why things are going to change. They don't feel secure anymore. They've just gotten to feel kind of secure in the ICU, and now that's all changed. Going out to rehab is another adjustment for them. Going home is a major adjustment. And they have abandonment issues, which I'll talk about later. So in looking at all kinds of research in different ICUs, patients with different issues, these are the four things that come up as what the family needs. And you see these over and over again. And they're pretty simple, and you kind of could 
if you didn't do the research, you would probably think that these are what the family needs anyway, right? They want to be physically close to the patient. We make that really difficult. We put the side rails up. We've got IV poles here, lines here, monitors, machines. It's hard to get near the patient. They want to be involved in their care. How is that possible when there's all this high-tech stuff going around? They need to get information, but they're going to forget the information that you told them. They also need it to be consistent. Everybody needs to tell them the same thing every day. They need trust. They need to be able to trust that you're going to take care of them, that you're going to tell them the truth, that you're going to be there for them. When we move into a more chronic, they're in their rehab stay, they need to maintain contact with the people who have taken care of them in the ICU. They need to come to their follow-up appointments. They're important. The interventions that are done in the rehab, the restoration, which is really a lovely word, right? They're going to get restored to where they were before. They're going to be some reflection, hopefully. They're going to be able to integrate this experience into their lives. The families are going to be able to integrate it as well. Hopefully, they'll get some help with that. They need to know that they have to be persistent, that this is an up-and-down process. It's not easy. It's a long term process with ups and downs. They have to keep going at it. And they need to understand that it is a process and it does take time and there are a lot of different parts. And I have to put in a plug for nurses. And one of the things that I, nurses are in a unique position because no matter whether you're in the intensive care unit or the floor, if you're in rehab or home care, you're going to wind up seeing a nurse. And we're the ones that can facilitate access to the patient. We'll put the side reel down. We'll move the machines out of the way. We'll tell families, bring in a blanket from home because it'll smell like home for them. Here, let me show you how to rub their feet and make them feel better. We're empathetic. We're going to build trust with the families. We're going to involve them in the care plans. And we're also going to tell them to take care of themselves. We have to make them understand that this is not a sprint. This is a marathon. And the caregivers have to get prepared for that. Our goals are to raise everyone's awareness about this, to know that this is an issue that we have to look at. We want to coordinate all the care and the services that people get. We want to coordinate with rehab, with the primary care providers, and everyone else who's involved all the services. We need to do research. We need to find out not only how bad this problem is and how extensive it is, but what can we do about it? What works and what doesn't work? And we need support for the patients, for the caregivers, and also for all the healthcare providers who are doing this work. So trauma. Why is trauma different? Trauma is special. It's what I do. Um, for a long time, we were happy if we just saved somebody's life. I've been doing this for 22 years. We were happy we got somebody out of the OR and out of the ICU. But then we started to think about what happens. What's our real goal here? It's someone that can go back to their family. It's someone that can go back to having a life, not just saving their lives. 
So why is trauma different? Trauma is a disease of young people. The average age is getting older over the last 10 years. Um, as old people are involved in more activities, we're still skiing and riding motorcycles and doing other crazy things as crazy baby boomers. But for the most part, it's still young people. They're working, they're going to school, they're making money, they're contributing to society. They have family and community responsibilities. It's a sudden, dramatic onset. These are not people who are sick before, for the most part. They're fine. They left for work or school in the morning. You said goodbye to them. And the next thing that happened was a phone call. Life has changed in an instant. And that's one of the things that I kind of think about a lot when I'm in the trauma bay and I wind up calling a family. I know that there's going to be a before and after that phone call. That phone call becomes the dividing line in life for them. This is actually a young woman who was a patient quite a long time ago who, uh, when she was 16, she was crushed between a car and a telephone pole. She had an above-the-knee amputation. Um, thanks to a lot of good rehab, she is a, went to college as a social worker. She skis. She has a baby and walks up and down stairs and does everything she needs to do. But she overcame a lot. She had a lot of chronic pain issues. She did spend a lot of time in the ICU. Severe injury, you get lifelong health issues from that. Recovery from severe trauma is longer, basically, than anything else. Two to three years, or maybe even longer than that. They have higher levels of post-traumatic stress disorder and other mental health issues. A fair number of trauma patients have mental health issues, substance abuse issues prior to the trauma. We know that. That's just how it is. Pain and mobility issues are usually number one on the issues that patients have. They don't return to work or school as early. They may never return to work or school. They use a lot of healthcare resources. They can lose their insurance. They have a long-term financial impact. It can take them years and years to climb out of the financial hole that a severe trauma puts them in. There are co-pays. How do you go to physical therapy three times a week if your co-pay is $15 for each visit and you're not working anymore? And often we see that after severe trauma, there is a decreased life expectancy. It's a lifelong critical illness. And it has to be thought of that way. There's not enough support and health care services for the patients and their families. Post-acute care can be very fragmented and very difficult for people to navigate. It's difficult for people to navigate when they're not under all types of stress. When they're under stress, it sometimes becomes insurmountable. And that's why a lot of patients stop following up. So when we talk about our trauma survivors, they are varied. They have all different kinds of injuries. Spinal cord injuries, traumatic brain injuries. They can have multiple fractures from a fall. And a lot of times, they will have mixed injuries. They can have traumatic brain injuries as well as fractures. So a spinal cord injury 
with multiple abdominal injuries from a gunshot wound. Try being, try being able to go to rehab at Kessler with a spinal cord injury, but you can't do transfers because both your arms have fractures. It's not going to happen. This is a patient, and you will actually see his face on the next slide. He uh, was a construction worker, fell, and landed on a metal pipe with his abdomen hitting the metal pipe. His stomach blew out. His intestines blew out. He hemorrhaged. He had some fractures. We weren't sure that he was going to come out of the first operation. He got so much blood and fluid that his abdomen could not be closed. So that, uh, okay, okay. So what you see there is a skin graft that was done later on because we were unable to close his abdomen. He developed fistulas. He had to have his bowels um, diverted, so he had ostomies and ileostomies. Uh, his stomach was stapled off. He was on um, parental nutrition for a long time. He was unable to eat. We would let him um, take some juice, and it would come out one of the tubes. His electrolytes had to be managed very carefully. His fluid balance managed very carefully. Um, so you can see this is someone who is extremely complex medically, plus all the psychological and cognitive issues that went with a long ICU stay. Trauma patients want what everybody else wants. They want to be independent, enjoy life, and take care of themselves. So this is Roger and Maria, his wife, who was his lifeline. She took care of him. And you can see how cachectic he is here, how much weight that he lost. That's one of the big issues we have with our patients, trying to get them nutritionally replete after an ICU stay. Um, they actually had a very happy ending for their story. They were patients uh, several years ago before we had the trauma survivor clinic. Um, they had my cell phone number, so I was their person. And um, Maria was able to take him home, and with a lot of assistance from healthcare companies, he had really good workers' comp, so they paid for a lot of stuff. But she managed everything at great emotional cost to herself. And we were there to support her. Um, we still see them every once in a while. They're doing great. They both look great. I wish I had a picture of them now, but I didn't take one the last time they came to visit. And they've had a baby. So changes that we see in quality of life for patients. Their general health changes. It's not as good as it was before. They're going to have lasting physical issues. Some of them may be very minor. Um, one of our um, guys who's going to do some peer support for us um, is a paramedic who also does, used to do extreme sports. He was skydiving and hit the ground at 30 miles an hour and wound up in intensive care for about four months and then rehab in a nursing home. He had uh, pelvic fractures, femur fractures, multiple rib fractures, hemonumothoraces, um, an incomplete spinal cord injury. 
and he's actually back to about 95% now. <clears throat> and he's going to be one of our peer support people. But he still has issues. There's still things that he cannot do. Um, psychological, social, environmental. Um, your mental health is not as good as it was before. One of my patients who's in our program, uh, who is just one of the sweetest men in the world, was in a car crash. He's also a Jehovah's Witness, so it was difficult for him. We were able to do one of his surgeries, but one of his other surgeries to fix an acetabulum could not be done. So he wound up spending 12 weeks in the hospital in traction. He had a history of relatively minor claustrophobia, but still claustrophobia. Can you imagine being in bed in traction for 12 weeks when you've got some claustrophobia? So that just made all those issues a lot worse for him. Socially, you can't do some of the things that you did before socially. Your friends may move on, especially if you're a college student. You're out of college. You're out of school for a year. Everybody's moved on. You're not going to be graduating with people. You're not going to be starting your life the same year that they're starting. Environmental. You've got to change where you live. Maybe you can't go upstairs anymore. Instead of the house you've lived in for 20 years, you've got to go to a ranch house. Or, especially if you're an older person, this means you cannot go back to independent living. You're going to need to go to assisted living. You're going to go live in a nursing home. You're going to go live with your children. For the survivor, there are not only the survivor, but for their family, there are also changes in quality of life as well. The personality may change. As you saw in the video, he was a little more quick to anger now. They may have some cognitive changes. They may need help with things that they didn't need help with before. Your lifestyle may change. If you were used to traveling, you may not be able to travel as much as you did. Maybe you can't travel at all with your spouse now. Financial problems. You were a two-income family, now you're one. Or you were a stay-at-home mom, and now you've got to go to work. You're in caregiver mode. Are you a partner anymore, or are you just a caregiver? So these are some of the things that caregivers have said. They didn't remember what people said to them. Okay. <clears throat> they have a new normal now. And that's really what it is. It's about thinking about, this is my new normal. Not that I'm going to settle for this, but this is normal right now. It can get better, but right now this is my normal. Life is totally changed. So the Trauma Recovery Project. So this is a project that um, Dr. Ann Mosenthal, who's my chair of surgery, and Dr. David Livingston, who's my boss and the director of trauma and critical care at the trauma center and also vice chair of surgery, have been kicking around for the last about five or six years. And about a year ago, we got a grant and from the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey and we're able to start bringing uh, those dreams to fruition. What we wanted to do was create a center that would provide care and support to patients and their families. 
we wanted to develop a peer support program of people who had been previously injured who would be able to work with these people and sort of tell them there was light at the end of the tunnel and that they were not alone in this. Provide support to the caregivers and do research and look at what we were doing, evaluate what we were doing, and hopefully begin to develop best practices so we would know what worked. What we started to do was have focus groups. So we had three focus groups. We called up um, a lot of our old patients and their family members and asked them if they would come in and talk to us. So we had lunch, and we all kind of sat together over lunch and talked about what happened to them while they're in the ICU. What did they remember? What worked for them? What didn't work for them? How could we have helped them better? What did they need that we weren't providing? These people were anywhere from 1 to 18 years out, of their, out from their injury. They had all different types of injuries. They were all ages. And what they said to us was that they felt that they were abandoned. And my God, that just kind of hurt us to the core. Um, because it just it never occurred to us that they felt abandoned by us. Um, and even they went to rehab they still felt that we had abandoned them. We followed them up. They came to see us in the office afterwards, but they didn't have that connection that they felt, for most of them, they could call us when they had a problem. They also told us about how their family life and their social life was disrupted. They told us about the financial impacts on them and their families. They told us they didn't know where to turn for help. They didn't know who to go to. So our plan out of this was to develop a center where they could come for medical care that we would provide, that we would provide pain management, that we would provide referrals that we would need, that they would need, that we would look at caregiver burden and provide support for them. that we would start with a health coach or navigator who could help them with the system. We'd get a nurse practitioner, that we, we would have an email, a cell phone, and a website for them, that we would start with some group counseling for patients and caregivers, that we do mental health screening counseling, and we work with social service to work on their financial issues. So that was our plan. It was pretty ambitious for a start. Um, our target population were males or females, any ethnicity of race, and we started with 18 to 80, and we realized that 16 and 17-year-olds and their families really needed us too. They had to be admitted to the ICU for more than two days, and they had to have a new injury severity score of 16 or more. An injury severity score looks at the body in different regions, the head, the abdomen, the pelvis, the chest, and scores the injuries to that region of the body. And it ranges from 1 to 5. Their number is squared. 16 is a severe injury. It goes up. Um, 25 is very severe. Somebody with a 25 is considered a really good save. And we have a lot of people with 25 in our group. So these are a really hurt group for the most part. This is our team. 
This is Alma, who's our receptionist. This is Dr. Peter Yonquist. He's a physiatrist who does a lot of our pain management as well as working with our brain injured patients and pretty much all of our patients because just about everybody needs a physiatrist. Um, I need a physiatrist. This is Derek Seek, who is our healthcare navigator and our program support specialist, and he is awesome. He was a medic, a combat medic in Afghanistan, so he knows a lot about PTSD. This is Dr. David Livingston, who's our director, and he is a bundle of awesomeness himself. Um, that's me. And this is our nurse practitioner, Susan LaBagnara, who is not only our nurse practitioner, but she is also the family member of two ICU survivors, her husband and her son. They were um, struck in a crosswalk by a car, and her son was in our pediatric ICU, and her husband was in our surgical ICU. Her husband, Al, is also our play therapist. So these were our own people who were in our ICU, and we didn't know if Al was going to survive. So um, he did, and he did well, but he has still some issues. So Susan really knows from both sides here. As a healthcare professional, she told me that it was difficult for her to navigate things when he was discharged. So she really knows what these people are going through. So Al is our first peer support uh, person who is part of our team as well. So what we, what we really do right now is we try and provide one-stop shopping for our patients. We know they have a lot of follow-ups to see. Trauma patients have between four and five other specialties that are seeing them. Um, facial surgeons, the dental surgeons, neurosurgeons, orthopedics is a big one, um, ENT. They need to make all these follow-ups. That's a lot of stuff to keep track of. So we want to help them keep track of that, make sure that they make all their follow-ups. What we also do is we do some pre-discharge visits. Susan and Derek, Susan and Al, uh, myself, will go and visit the patients prior to their discharge and their families, give them our email, our website, our cell phone numbers for the center, tell them that they, we're going to give them an appointment, we'll contact them for the appointment. They can call us, email us with any questions that they have. We make that contact before they leave the hospital. A lot of times we'll go when they're still in the ICU and make contact with their family so that they have some support while they're in the ICU. Then we see them in the center. We do medical care. We'll do a lot of complex wound care with them. We'll do a lot of checks just to see how they're doing, how their gait is. We do a lot of pain management. We provide a lot of psychological support for them. We also provide the contact for them when they go home, that they can call or email us. They can go on our website. It's important for us to maintain contact while they're in rehab and for them to come and see us while they're in rehab or in a subacute so that we can make sure that things are going well and that they are seeing everybody that they need to see. 
One of the things that we found is difficult for patients is transportation. So we have an Uber health account. So we can send an Uber for patients when they need to come and see us if they don't have transportation any other way. Um, that was one of the things that we found out was a really big issue and a real hardship for people. Especially as they go on, you know, you get to be, you know, four or five, six months out, all those people that were willing to help you when you came home from the hospital, they're not there anymore. We also collect a lot of data. We do a measurement of their health status. We do a FIMS with them, depression, anxiety. We look, check PTSD. And we also check the caregivers. We do caregiver burden with them. So this is Susan with uh, Sam, who is also part of our team. He's a standard poodle, and he will come and visit patients while they're still in the hospital, and he'll also come over to the center and visit patients and families there. And he also does therapy with us as well. The strengths and challenges, our team is, is really our biggest strength, and also knowing learning from the patients and their families that this is really something that's desperately needed, that they really want this. We need more mental health services, and scheduling is a big problem. These are long visits, anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half, sometimes two hours, depending on the patient and what's going on. What we've learned, patients often arrive in tears, but they leave with a smile. And a lot of times, the staff is in tears, too. Um, data is really useful to show patients that they are getting better. So we can do an eval with them when they come in. We'll do it again at their next visit and maybe at the third visit. And we're able to show them that they are making progress. It may be slow, but they are making progress. It's there in black and white. Follow-up phone calls are really necessary because people forget what we tell them, even when we write it down they still forget. They forget that it's written down. So we have to maintain that contact. That's really crucial. As I said, the visits last a long time. That makes scheduling difficult, but they have to be that long. And we know that we're on the right track. Our future plans include a mind spa. We're going to take one of the rooms in the center and put one of those massaging chairs in it add some aromatherapy, put in a uh, computer that will have some meditation modules on it. So we're going to do a, um, a grant for that hopefully next year and get that going. And we'll have the caregivers spend some time in that when they bring the patients to us. We may also have the patients use it, and I think we will all probably use it as well. We're in the process of hiring a social worker who can do counseling and will also run support groups for us. So we're hoping to have our support groups up and running sometime in January. We're going to increase our peer support. We've added our second person, who is Brian, our uh, paramedic, who's actually, he's a first-year medical student now as well. So he's going to become our trauma child, uh, as well as one of our, our peer support counselors. And we're also going to be doing research so that we can find out if what we're doing works and develop best practices. Some references, which I hope you have. If not, let me know. These are a lot of resources that you can go to. And this is the American Trauma Society. If you just Google American Trauma Society, that'll come up. 
and they have a whole trauma survivor network organization there um, with a lot of survivor stories and uh, some things that you can do on computer to assess your recovery. So Sam again, because he's so handsome, and thank you all very much. To listen to more conference podcasts, information about Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation or Kessler Foundation, check out the links within the description of this podcast. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter. 